This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Celebrating a return to the studio in this episode, the Whigs delve into three diverse topics. First up, the limits of academic freedom as revealed in a recent High Court of Australia decision in Ridd versus James Cook University 2021 HCA 32. Should academic freedom be qualified by a requirement to afford respect and courtesy to others in one's field of competence? Should academics be censured or even lose their jobs for speaking out, being critical of others and for attacking university administration and decision making? Secondly, the Whigs discuss the controversial cases of Kassam versus Hazard, Henry versus Hazard 2020. New South Wales SC 1320, in which the plaintiffs brought a whole host of legal challenges to the New South Wales vaccination requirements and, spoiler, lost all of them. Thirdly, a case about a teenage Aboriginal girl videoed by police whilst being strip-searched and whether her case could be heard by a female magistrate. And, of course, stay tuned for fun things at the end of the episode. I am Jim Minns and this is The Wigs. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, oh my God, it's so great to be back in the studio with The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. Welcome to the show. We've got Felicity Graham. Woohoo, we're Woo-hoo. back. That's great. Emmanuel Kukasharian. It's a little weird, Jim. It's a bit weird. It's a bit weird. It's, it's nice to see you. Thank you. It's great to be seen. Yeah. It's great to see all of you and his worship, the mayor of Dubbo. Hey, Still mate. the mayor. Good to be here. Still the mayor. Stephen Until Mines. December 4. Oh, there you go. Wow. Midnight on December 3, I think. All right. The countdown begins. Mm. Yeah. Well, Looking I mean, forward to it. Not that we're counting down. How many sleeps? Don't know. I haven't got to that level. But. Mm. We're cool now. I remember this, this show has taken the course of COVID... You know, the start of COVID, everyone was worried about a little sniff here and there, and now we've, we've, here we are two years later, fully vaxxed, ready to sprout out some legal eagle stuff. Quite, James. <laughs> there you go, Emmanuel. Oh, is that what, of course, yeah, we forgot it's to do that, that episode. James. Yes. James. We will explain in the fun slash annoying things. Can I please take us to the first topic, which will be handed by the great uh, Emmanuel... Oh, great, yes. We'll, we'll maintain What's the your titles. middle name? Stepan. 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 The great Emmanuel Stepan Kirkusharian, please. What's going on? Episode one of the week. Uh, Rid v. James Cook University 2021 High Court of Australia 32 is my topic. What's going on there? Um, So, Mr. Professor Rid, rather, was the head of physics at James Cook University and a member of the Marine Geophysics Laboratory. In 2015, he sent an email to a journal basically saying that the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority was grossly misusing some scientific data to suggest that the reef was more damaged than it in fact was. Mm. Um, He included some examples about that, sort of examples of the evidence they were misusing, effectively saying that they were spinning a yarn, they were spinning a story. And at the conclusion of that email, uh, Professor Reid said... Um, that the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority and another bunch of people called the ARC Centre for Excellence should check their facts before they spin their story. That's a quote. Mm-hmm. And that quote, my guess is that they will both wiggle and squirm because they actually know that these pictures are likely to be telling a misleading story and they will smell a trap. Mm-hmm. These comments, the ones that I've just mentioned, were part of, or the basis really, of a finding of misconduct against Professor Reid and a censure of him by the university. So there was a complaint. Uh Right? Um, Is that all he did? 
That's the first thing he did. Oh. So there, there's, there was two things. Um, and they found that he'd breached the code of conduct that the university has by not acting collegially, which was one of the principles of the code, uh, and not upholding the integrity and good reputation of the university. He was formally censured and directed that he must make his comments in an academic field in the future in a collegial manner. Okay. Okay. Anyway, 2017, August, he's on Sky News in an interview. Okay. And he says, quote, the basic problem is we can no longer trust the scientific organisations like the Australian Institute of Marine Science and even things like the ARC Centre of Excellence. A lot of this stuff coming out, the science is coming out not properly checked, tested or replicated, and it's a great shame. Um, we can't trust our scientific institutions, and he goes on in that vein. Mm. He's similarly censured for that. Now, they are, we'll call those the, the, the sort of academic censures. We'll call those the academic censures. Yep. There was another part of that second set of, of things, uh, of comments, where he sent an email uh, to some external recipients saying things like he had offended powerful organisations and, quote, some sensitive but powerful and ruthless egos and, quote, our whole university system pretends to value free debate, but it, in fact, crushes it. So that's the other aspect of, of his impugned conduct. Uh-huh. Now, um, essentially, he ends up in the High Court on what is a contract dispute, right? So, so in the first instance, they it's fire found him? in his fight. They, they, they censure him and... Did they fire him? I think they... I can't remember whether or not they fired him, but they... I think they might have fired him. But anyway, they, there's a contract dispute about whether or not he's in breach of his contract. So they, he wins at the first instance. Okay. Uh, loses on appeal, loses in the high court. Okay. But the first two things that I described as sort of the, the academic st- censure, those things, the high court says, well, no, the contract provides for effectively intellectual freedom. And there's some powerful statements in the High Court judgment about that. And because he was speaking within his expertise, uh, that's fine. And he ought not to have been censured. But the other part, where he's criticising the university and critical of, of the whole university system, the High Court says, well, that's not what within his expertise. And so it was fine to censure him for that uh-huh. and punish him for that. And that was, in effect, a breach of his contract. Okay. So it's an interesting decision in the sense... Well, on one level, it's not a very interesting decision. There's a contract that's been construed um, on its terms. On another level, it's interesting in that you have this idea of academic freedom that's enshrined in some ways in the law, but really here it was enshrined in the contract... And a distinction was drawn between things that are within a professor's expertise and things that are not. Um, To my mind, it's a little bit weird to say that a professor can say things about a particular specific expertise that he has and then to sort of draw a distinction between that and commenting on how the university system as a whole works the only person who really is able to do that, who's an expert in that, would be the manager of a university. And it seems to me antithetical to intellectual freedom to prevent university professors from commenting generally. Put another way, 
it seems to me that it, every university professor is an expert in how the university system engages in free debate. And I think that is an odd distinction that was drawn by the High Court. Um, the other sort of interesting aspect to this was this idea of being polite and, and not being robust in, the, in your criticism. Um, and one of the examples given by the High Court goes something like, if someone's a flat earther, you could politely say, um, and this isn't the High Court words, but you could politely say, well, there's no evidence that the earth is flat. Or you could say, flat earth is rubbish and you shouldn't believe in it, and, and anyone who thinks it is crazy. And there really is a distinction between those two statements. Mm-hmm. And you should be permitted to say, you know, this is rubbish if that's your academic opinion. So it found then that Professor Ridd sincerely believed, well, there's no suggestion he didn't believe what he was saying about the Great Barrier Reef was true, mm-hmm. uh, but it didn't matter when it came to his criticisms of the university and how it operated. Um, and so he lost, and he lost, in, he lost oddly because he sort of ran this all-or-nothing case whereby he didn't take issue with... He basically ran it as if to say, well, everything they did was wrong, and so they shouldn't have revoked my contract. Um, whereas it was open really to him to take finer points about it. And I just wonder whether it was a tactical decision or a strategic decision taken by him to really put free speech front and centre in the way that he did, um, or whether a, they just ran it the wrong way. It, well, it has to, because how does a contract dispute get so nuanced that it goes to the High Court? Yeah. Well, it's a bit weird in that I think sense. because it incorporated the Code of Conduct, right? It like, did. He had to comply with the Code of Conduct yeah. as part of his contract. Yeah. And that Code of Conduct embodies academic freedom and all those sort of things. So that's kind of the way, the way that it sort of got there, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a somewhat nuanced question of the construction of a contract because mm. there was a contract, the contract incorporated this code, there was some way that they, the, the academic freedom versus what the code required, there were some problems in how they fit together. It was, yeah. one would say, poorly drafted. Clearly. And that needed to be worked out. Now, if that was a contract about buying milk... And it was the same sort of issues. I suspect the High Court would not have troubled itself with it. Right. It's the fact that there was this underlying issue of, of academic freedom that yeah. brought it to the attention of the court. So were his criticisms of university administration arising from the way that his criticisms on in relation to his specialty had been responded to? Yeah, I think there was a very negative... Uh, response to his criticism. Um, I I don't want to put words into his mouth, but I suspect he felt silenced or that there was yeah. a genuine attempt being made to silence him. I mean, he says himself, I've offended powerful forces and so yeah. on. It just seems like an artificial distinction, doesn't it? Totally. To draw this distinction between like one field of comment, which is within your expertise, therefore you've got the right to say things that might be offensive or kind of strident mm. as compared to, you know, matters pertaining more to what the administration of the university and that's not your expertise. Yeah. It just seems like that's an incredibly artificial distinction because if you're this person who's a bit idiosyncratic and, you, you know, maybe you're a bit of an outlier in your 
your academic stuff, you're going to almost inevitably kind of run into university administration, right? Like you'll often have these sort of personality types that are going to have both types of disputes because of yeah. academic views. I see what you're saying because it's kind of like, it, like, like how do you suppress my... Like, why am I here if I'm not employed to be the voice of research you know i have to have the freedom to to use that voice mm. and if people get in the way through my words well that's just part of my freedom to express my uh my university expertise mm. in that is arguing i don't know i thought there was quite a causal connection between the original opinions that he expressed to the journalist about the Great Barrier Reef and the unscientific approach by other academics or scientific organisations in in relation to the damage that has or hasn't been caused to the reef over time. And then the censure of him for that conduct which effectively relied on this notion of not being sufficiently respectful and courteous to colleagues and others. And then his response to that censure, which then caused further censure and then his further response, which then ultimately led to his termination... And so it's all part of this connected series of events which come from a circumstance where the High Court acknowledges that the original censure was in breach of the Enterprise Agreement because it was contrary to his legitimate um, ability to exactly express his opinions genuinely held within his area of expertise, etc., so I sort of thought it was quite unfair that you have this connected set of circumstances and the ultimate result, whilst by that point also concerned things like breaching confidentiality requirements of the Enterprise <clears throat> Agreement in respect of the complaints handling process within the university and how that was a separate, um, a separate breach that the High Court said didn't fall within the the freedom or the, the academic uh, freedom. And then, but it's all sort of part of the, it all comes from this. I mean, mm. but for the original censure, which was wrongly given, he wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been frustrated yeah. and expressing these opinions about how he had offended powerful organisations and, quote, some sensitive but powerful and ruthless egos and, quote, our whole university system pretends to value free debate but, in fact, it crushes it. So it's all... Seems very connected to me. Connected, yeah. yeah. And there seem to be other, perhaps, arguments that he could have made along the way which he perhaps wrongly conceded. So, for example, the High Court and the Federal Court both said... Why is he conceding that this conduct amounted to serious misconduct? The High Court made findings that in respect of at least some of the things that he did, that it was trivial, Mm. and in respect of some of the confidentiality aspects, um, that the material was in the public domain anyway. And so he might have met an exception to that requirement of the Enterprise Agreement. So there seemed to be certain different 
decisions that have been made along the way of the litigation that put him in this, as the High Court said, all or nothing Yeah, he's pushing the envelope case. as he goes along. Um, he's running it like running it in a particular way. Yeah, because he's like, no, nah, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because if you don't do that, once you admit to having those issues being ones that, you know, materiality, seriousness of the breach and so on, the chilling effect's already there. Mm. I mean, I don't know whether he did it on purpose, all or nothing, but it may well have been his view Mm. that, look, free speech at universities is going to be chilled unless you can do this sort of stuff, regardless of whether it's material or serious or whatever, because that's what academic freedom means. Right. And that, I think... It's a real loss that, that the High Court ruled in the way that it did. And I I just, of late, I, I don't, I can't even think of the judgments off the top of my head, but it's the sort of hair splitting that we see where you kind of just hope that you'd get this strong statement from the court that says, look, the contract says academic freedom, that's what, sh- that's what prevails. And instead of saying that, it kind of finds this narrow technical ground to find against him that really makes his point, I think, which is that the free speech is under attack in that way. Mm. Do you think it's interesting, because this is a big issue in the United States, a lot of the universities in the United States, I'm hearing, that it's social media mentality or justice, for lack of a better term, rubbing off in some of the judicial system, and then they can split hairs because they're saying, look, society's saying that this isn't right. You should have sort of suppression here a little bit in terms of your free speech and we're just following through on what we what society's rubbing off on us when we say yeah we're splitting a hair here yeah yeah i mean i was gonna sort of comment that i think the judiciary kind of operates in a system where procedure and deference to procedure is given a high premium so they obviously didn't see anything intrinsically wrong in terms of the academic freedom protection withdrawing this distinction where he's free to, to say what he wants if it pertains to some academic issue, right. but he's really constrained in terms of criticising the system, so to speak. Yeah, okay. Even if his criticism of the system um, is responsive to this incursion on his academic freedom that seems to have been illegitimate. And I guess that's... A, that's Maybe a that's having an a bet easy way, though, distinction for judges to draw, right, but okay. a distinction you know that in the real world is a bit kind of complicated to me. And I can't help but think of it in terms of local government because we've got this code of conduct that applies to us that's, uh, that's issued under the Local Government Act. And unlike this academic code that he was subject to, it doesn't even say anything about the freedom of political communication. Mm. And it applies the same code to councillors as to council staff without taking into account, you know, that councillors are elected and have a political role to speak out and so forth. And that is used in quite a chilling way. Because what, staff go and tweet and... Is that what you're referring to? Like used in a chilling way in the sense that if councillors engage in political communication that might offend people, that might be unwanted, then it falls within all of these definitions of bullying and harassment in circumstances where... At any other level of government, it wouldn't be considered such. In fact, Uh it would be considered normal. Mm. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting that, you know, above and beyond our code in local government, at least they've got that right to academic freedom Mm. and it's enshrined in their code of conduct. It gives them protection. 
you know, in contrast to ours. Um, so I guess, it, you know, it's interesting to think about the way that, you know, freedoms of speech are constrained by codes of conduct in all of these sort of contexts, which are not legislative and don't actually recognise a lot of these underlying fundamental rights. Um, I think it's another example where not having a Bill of Rights means that there's not sufficient protection given to some mm. of these fundamentals that we notionally think that our system honours. Because the university is a government authority, right, in some sense. Like they govern in some sense. Us. Yeah. So if there was a Bill well, of Rights, it would probably protect him. Yeah, and I mean, it depends on how it goes, but the the American Bill of Rights is often used in, to protect, and they've got the Civil Rights Act as well, to protect effectively people against corporate interests. Mm. But to your question, James, I think... <laughs> I think nicely played, Emmanuel. Oh, that doesn't work. Uh, Stepan, come on, Stepan. Stepan, take it away. So, uh, I think that we are in the absence of a Bill of Rights. We, the legal profession, is suffering from that postmodern disease of an absence of values that anyone can really point to and say are fundamental. I think that the inherent knowledge of lawyers, I think we're, ta- we're starting to reach the stage where our judges no longer have that same value base enshrined in them, like say may have been the case 100 years ago. Mm. Now, in some senses, that's great because there's been some great movement forward. But in other cases, and I think in this one, mm. the absence of a powerful moral imperative to say, look at the equity of the issue in the old sense of that word, you know, the conscience of our queen, that kind of look at the equity of the issue and make a strong ruling is gone. And we're yeah. starting to see that manifest in more and more ways up and down the up and down the judicial chain. So you're saying look forward to some more radical high court decisions that could Well, I'm saying we need a bloody bill of rights. Right, okay. Yeah. His comments just don't sound that bad to me, by the way. It doesn't mm. sound like the height of a lack of collegiality. But the reef Stephen the Reef. Yeah, yeah, but I mean the other stuff where he said powerful interests are operating against me and blah blah. Uh, yeah. So what? Yeah, I yeah. suppose what if he's talking? Is he talking there about the dean or something? Or? Well, pres- presumably, people in the university are included in those powerful interests, you know. Mm. But so what? I mean that that's robust debate. I'm very know? surprised we went to the high court, but yeah. yeah. Must have gone up on the academic freedom point, I guess. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I don't know. Let's, let's remember that uh, I don't know what I'm talking about as well. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> All right, yeah, cool. I mean, there's quite an interesting analysis oh. of the history of the academic freedom and its sort of central aspects and an analysis or sort of recitation of the fact that, you know, some people regard the whole point of being an intellectual to be embarrassing Mm. To be contrary, to be even unpleasant, mm. to like being a counsellor, <laughs> and that these exactly. sort of like being a podcaster, social or civil norms of everyone just being respectful and kind and deferential to each other doesn't really work. But, but based on, but if, it's, it's based, and it's not based on anything. It's yeah. like there's no foundation to draw from. They're just going, I think this is how we feel about how society mm. would dictate this right now. Because you've got to have the freedom and to And there's be no wrong. foundation that we're drawing from. I'm referring to the judgment. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that the judgment goes 
I think that may be. I think that may be an underlying philosophical thing that pervades our judiciary now. I don't know that the judgment itself goes down that road, and I don't know whether judges, lawyers, barristers are really cognizant in their day-to-day lives of the absence of that kind of underlying joint value structure that we've previously subsisted on. The common law. Is that what you mean? I mean the principles underpinning the Mm. common law. Yeah, the values of the common law. Yeah, and equity, you know. Mm. So many of our judges are just technocrats, I reckon, now. They're just applying rules and principles... They're like, well, clause 14.2 of the Code of Conduct says this and it doesn't have the same, you know, language as clause 13.1, so this asks that and rah, rah, rah. Like, when was the last time you would kind of read some stirring defence of a fundamental right used to interpret legislation in a way that inconveniences the executive? just seems quite rare. Very rare. And when it happens, it's often watered down I'm thinking of the Lee H7 line concerning um, for, forced uh, speech against yourself watered down very quickly um, and not sort of followed through in that sort of principled way that you would have thought but I say it's because if you what are society's values today nobody has an answer to that question you know 40 years ago, 50 years ago, it probably would have been sort of a Christian basis for that. People would have pointed to Christian morality. Uh, today, there is no morality that is generally accepted as generally accepted. Mm. And so many of the principles of liberal democracy in terms of individual rights, the separation of powers, etc., etc., they're just being watered down. Well, because, so yeah. much legislation. Mm. You, know, you yeah. can't say that they are fundamental values in the same way that they were, I don't think. Mm. And I think it's important to note just factually in this case, there was not a skerrick of a suggestion that what he said was unlawful or defamatory mm. or wrong or unreasonable or you know any of those kind of standards that you might apply to speech that might then cause someone to be legitimately Mm. held to account for that speech. Yeah, like it's a pretty low-level speech. So did they talk about in the judgment any of the political communication cases? You know those those implied right cases where the High Court talks about, and I'm thinking particularly of Kirby. Nothing. In Coleman of Power, I think it was, where he talks about how being offensive, being mm. wrong, being et cetera, et cetera, that's actually all part of the implied freedom because the moment you don't have the right to be wrong, you actually don't have the right to talk about something. Yeah. And I see shades of that here in the sense that if you don't have the right, in inverted commas, to respond in a cantankerous way to these attempts to interfere in your academic freedom, then you actually don't have academic freedom because if you're all held to this very fine line you lose the essence of the exercise of that freedom. And that this yeah. distinction they've drawn doesn't seem to recognise that. And in a way, if you're being censured wrongly by a university in relation to something that affects your academic freedom and you can't say anything about that publicly because it doesn't fall within the confines of the procedures for responding to 
complaints or deal, you know, legitimately making criticism of the university and its policies and practices, then that really undermines your your baseline academic freedom. Mm, has to. Because other people can't know about it. That's right. There can't be that transparency and that exposure to the light of but certainly, certainly, the, the, undermine, the, the original undermining of the academic freedom. You're certainly going to self-police yourself. Yeah, exactly. Well, sure. especially yeah. if it's this kind of, you know, a case like this and these facts, people will silence themselves. They'll think, oh, I can't put that in an email. Yeah. And where does it and end? I can't say that. I can't go on, be invited onto, what was it, Sky News or whatever was one of the other interviews he did. I oh, know you can be invited onto Sky News. You can be invited, but you, <laughs> but you can't then. You're out of a job. You're out of a job. Yeah. yeah. And this guy was a very experienced academic. He, he'd been employed by James Cook University for 27 years. Jeez. He'd managed the university's marine geophysics laboratory for 15 years. He'd mm. been the head of physics. He'd been ranked by ResearchGate within the top 5% of researchers globally. This is a very mm. experienced senior person being... Mm. Happy to let him go. Good grief. And I have no idea whether or not what he said was right or wrong. Sure. But if he was right, what he's talking about is millions of dollars being wasted and lots of time being wasted when we've got a hell of a lot of academic, uh, sorry, environmental problems on something that might be a rare non-problem. Now, mm. I don't know whether or not that's right, but the minute you start stifling that, the effects on our society are incalculable. Mm. So just going back to the beginning, he was sacked. He yeah, was he was. Yeah, he was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he originally, the first judge in the federal circuit court gave him over a million dollars in compensation. So he was he succeeded at the beginning, then then he lost. Yeah, I hope he's crowdfunded for this because Jesus... no no orders was made as to cost. No order. Oh, okay, that's something for him. Yeah. Well, at least in the high court, I don't know about below. Mm. Yeah. Just to your point, Stevie, though, about this issue of if you don't have the right to be wrong. Um, I really prize my right to be wrong. Yeah, so, I mean... Well, it's so, it happens so often. <laughs> I mean, you have to, Steve. Seriously. Sorry, Felicity, I just spoke over you in the great <laughs> traditions of... No, that's next episode. Sorry, next episode. That's next episode. Yeah, so, I mean, they do, in their exposition of academic freedom or intellectual freedom, talk about the importance of critical and open debate and inquiry, including publicly and this spirit of free inquiry. And then they cite this um, this quote from some, I assume, bloke, E.E. Brown, in 1900. It's a part of the mission of educational institutions to take their place and play their part in the conflicts which are necessary to the life of peoples and when their part assumes the form of a struggle for the right to teach the truth as they find it the conflict itself may prove their best means of persuading men and i include women that truth is worth fighting for in other words that you've got to have the clash you've got to have the clash of ideas Welcome back from that brief interlude. It's uh, lovely to be here in the studio once more. We're moving on with the wigs. I just want one, one suggestion before we get to the next topic. 
when we feel like we've had enough on that topic, can we incorporate some sort of a button, like on the voice in the middle of the desk, where someone could just go, bam? That's a great idea. And it's like the the topic's done. Just so and then everyone all knows. our chairs swivel around. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just so you know, and one of us dies. Well, I mean, look, it would certainly help with the editing. Uh, that's for sure. But you know, uh, we'll, we'll get to that later. Inject a seat. <laughs> There's less voices to uh, to uh, monitor. Correspond to with your mother about that, John. Oh, hey, thank you, Stepan. <laughs> and we're moving on to his worship, uh, Stephen Lawrence. I don't know what you're talking about. Enlighten me. Enlighten us. Okay, I'm talking about uh, the recent decision of the Supreme Court. Yes. By the Chief Judge of Common Law, uh, Beach Jones, on the, it was actually a whole lot of cases heard together. Uh, Henry um, and Kassam were the two lead plaintiffs who had sued the Health Minister, the State Health Minister Hazard. Oh, I know about this. Yeah, right. the Chief Health Officer. And also the Commonwealth was a party because there was some arguments in relation to the validity under Section 109 of the Constitution of some of the state law provisions. On issue with civil conscription? Yeah, civil conscription was one issue that, that sort of involved the Commonwealth. Then there was an argument, there's um, a federal act to do with an immunisation register, mm. and they basically said that some of the compulsory back stuff was inconsistent with provisions of that act. But that argument got kind of well and truly tossed. Mm. So this was a pretty high-profile case. Went viral, um, didn't it? Yeah, the solicitors for uh, the Kassam litigants, sorry, the Henry plaintiffs, was GMB lawyers who been quite activist, I guess you could say, in the uh, anti-vax space. Maybe that's been kind. Uh, their Facebook seems to have attracted a lot of uh, likes. There were 70,000 people watching one of the mentions on YouTube. Yeah. 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 That's real public interest. I remember you telling us that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the it's usually it's a YouTube channel that usually gets between three and seven um, views per video. Except mm-hmm. when Manny's appearing in front of Justice. Oh, Fagan then it goes Black up. Lives Matter. Case. Of course, then sure. That, but that was five thousand. Five thousand. Yes, yeah. seventy thousand. And that, 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 that was mine was a substantive hearing. hearing. Yeah, directions. Of course. Hearing. Yeah, yeah. So no. What were they watching? I don't. Can what were they watching? People okay. care well, they were watching. What, what happened initially? The directions hearing, but then the final hearing. I'm sure that got lots of views. Give us the background. Okay, it's super complicated. No one could accuse these people of not having had a go. They gave it a red hot go. You have a go. You get a go. You get a go, and you lose, and you f- <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> So, sorry, yeah. Auntie Mish. We'll beat that. <laughs> yeah, I will beat, but I promise it, Auntie Mish. All right, go. So I'll try and describe the nature of the case in this way. So one set um, um, of plaintiffs, the Kassam plaintiffs, as they were called, they were basically arguing that the public health COVID-19 additional restrictions of a Delta outbreak order number two was invalid and also that uh, the section of the public health order that it was made under was also invalid. They were four unvaccinated people. Uh, they're described in the judgment in terms of who they are. And the plaintiffs were sort of a range of people, some of them sort of working in health and aged care and construction. They appeared via video link? I'm not, I'm not sure how they appeared. Mm. They did. <laughs> yeah, well, you'd have to. We wouldn't let them in the building. Unvaxxed, yeah. No, I think it all... You don't it, have to show I, I watched some of it and it was all today. remotely. Yeah, okay. Sorry. So everyone's on a screen, all the lawyers, the experts... 
Okay. All right, sorry for holding up proceedings there, Mr. No Lawrence. worries. So that was those group of litigants. Then the other six plaintiffs who were also unvaccinated people, they challenged the validity of that same public health order. Plus they were challenging the validity of the two public health orders in relation to aged care, uh, the vaccination of aged care workers, and then the other order concerned with the vaccination of education and care workers. They all ran a heap of grounds. There was a large number of grounds in common, but then some grounds that they ran that the other set um, of plaintiffs didn't. Um, so a number of the grounds turned um, on legal issues and didn't really turn on the evidence. But then a number of, and I'll talk about those in a moment, but then a number of other grounds turned on and they were mainly grounds concerned with uh, the reasonableness of the issuance of the orders and arguments in relation to whether a number of relevant considerations had not been taken into account in making the orders. They turned on expert evidence. Um, so there was a lot of evidence led. Uh, there was evidence led in the nature of expert evidence by the plaintiffs and also by the state. And... I won't go through it all because that's probably the biggest part of the judgment and it's all quite complicated. Um, probably the best way of summarising the evidence issues before I move on and talk about some of the grounds and how they were disposed of because uh, all the cases were unsuccessful is to just go to what the judge said in paragraph 192 about his findings in relation to the evidence. So he said this, now bearing in mind the misgivings I have about the ultimate relevance of this material to the complaints of unreasonableness, I summarise my findings on the evidence as, as follows. And I should say the evidence was of a very broad scope, but a lot of it related to whether there is alternative ways of treating COVID uh, that mean uh, that mean that making vaccinations compulsory is perhaps not reasonable and then uh, evidence in relation to the question of the effect of vaccination. So does it, for example, reduce the risk of transmission? How does it impact on health outcomes and so forth? Mm -hmm. And adverse consequences of getting yeah, exactly. vaccinated. Yeah. yeah, and that question of adverse consequences was one of the things that was relevant to this question of reasonableness. Um, and they ran all these arguments basically saying that it wasn't reasonable to impose these restrictions through the public health order um, after you take into account adverse outcomes and the actual effect um, of the vaccinations in terms of the positive effects, when you also take into account uh, the alternative methods of treatment and so forth that the minister, in their view, had not considered. And I'm guessing the, the court didn't even entertain the examples of... No, they did. Okay. Yeah, so the court considered all of the evidence. The court had misgivings about whether particularly the unreasonableness ground required the court to determine all those evidentiary questions. And I think that was probably a view based on, you know, the distinction between merit and legality in administrative law. Okay. That it's not for a court in judicial review proceedings, which these were. Right, yeah. To kind of make findings about the merits of the case. And yeah, I think okay. that's how the judge sort of saw that evidence. But anyway, he said this. 
to the extent that it's necessary to decide whether there is a conflict between the evidence of Professor McCartney and any witness whose evidence was deduced by the plaintiffs, and then there's an exception to that, but that's the basic finding. I accept the evidence of Professor McCartney. She was the state expert, basically, um, who gave evidence that was accepted. Okay. Um, to the extent that there is, it is said that there are alternative COVID-9 treatments of the kind postulated by... Well, hang on, hang on. COVID-19. COVID-19. COVID-9 is a different Oh, did I say disease. COVID-9? Yeah. yeah sorry. Okay. Was that a different case? That was a fun one. <laughs> COVID-9. <laughs> Mate, it's... Been, COVID-9. The early days. Yeah. Horrible miscarriage. That was a, that was a good, good <laughs> flu, that one. To the extent that it is said there are alternative COVID-19 treatments of the kind postulated by, and then they name some of the experts, including vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and ivermectin. Ivermectin. Ivermectin, sorry. That's all right. I've had a lot of people email me about ivermectin. <laughs> then I'm not satisfied they have been shown to be safe and effective. None have been approved by the TJ. No published peer-reviewed reputable studies demonstrating their effectiveness were attended. I accept Professor McCartney's description of the risks associated with the use of COVID-19 COVID-19 vaccines, um, summarised above. There was a consensus amongst the experts that the COVID-19 vaccines attenuate the symptoms and sequelae of contracting the disease. So there didn't seem to be a dispute on the expert evidence that the vaccines work in terms of reducing symptoms and so forth. Um, the, prop, the weight of proper scientific opinion as reflected by Professor McCartney's evidence suggests that the COVID-19 vaccines reduce the risk of acquiring an infection and then transmitting the disease once infected, although the vaccines are less effective against the Delta variant. There is uncertainty as to the duration of the protection against infection offered by vaccination and whether it is equal to, equal to natural immunity. Those matters are the subject of ongoing debate and investigation. So that was basically the factual findings, which didn't end up informing most of the ways that he dealt with the grounds but he did need to make those findings to deal with the unreasonableness grounds so turning to some of the grounds and how he dealt with them i won't go through them all because there's heaps of them and some of them differ and some of them were kind of pretty quickly thrown out mm -hmm. but so i might just talk about some of the grounds that were in common between all of the plaintiffs. So they ran a sort of broad argument that that the public health orders, all three of them, were ultraviaries or not authorised by the Act because they interfered with rights and freedoms of, of um, a fundamental nature and therefore, unless the Act specifically authorised the abridgement or interference with those rights, uh, the principle of legality would operate to say that uh, the, the Act wouldn't authorise uh, orders of that nature. So this is a pretty fundamental principle in kind of statutory construction and administrative law uh, that basically says that a piece of legislation won't be authorised, for example, to authorise detention or authorise something that might bring about an unfair trial or something that otherwise interferes with a fundamental right unless it's expressly stated to do so. So one big aspect of their argument, for example, was to say that uh, there's a right to bodily integrity. Um, so you've got a right not to have your body interfered with. 
and that the scheme of the public health orders in the sense that it requires vaccination in order to attend a work your workplace yeah mm-hmm. yeah that that in a sort of indirect way interferes in your bodily integrity because it puts you in a position where there's this overwhelming pressure in terms of your kind of interest in working and interest in leaving your house, interest in doing different things that will force you to have the vaccination and therefore your bodily integrity is interfered with. Mm. Yeah. And all of the plaintiffs engaged this idea that their bodily integrity was threatened and it was sort of a link from the circumstances where the... Public health direction, you know, the public health direction didn't say you, everyone must get a vaccine and forcefully, you know, have a jab in the arm. Mm. It was in respect to some plaintiffs who lived in areas of concern, so southwest Sydney mainly, you can't leave home, except you can if you're an authorised, um, an authorised worker except if you come from these areas of concern, if you're vaccinated. And then in respect to some of the other plaintiffs, it was because of the particular type of work that they were doing. So either at construction sites, in um, aged care facilities, or as school teachers, for example. Mm. Mm. So you can sort of tell from the judgment that what was put to them uh, by the judge and obviously argued by the state or the respondents was, well, there's nothing in this scheme that requires you to have a vaccination. It just creates sort of indirect pressures. Therefore, as a simple proposition, it doesn't engage your bodily integrity, right? So what they then argued, which I thought was pretty interesting, um, they turned to the cases concerned with when consent is vitiated Mm. and said, well, if you're satisfied that the indirect pressure to have the vaccination is something that would vitiate consent, then it actually is a battery because when the person's jabbed, they're doing it in circumstances where their consent is vitiated or their consent their is not real. Their will has been overborne. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, Justice Beast jones basically said, I'm just not satisfied that, you know, those kind of principles are engaged. Mm. It's still valid consent, even if you're only consenting to it because, you know, you wish to maintain your work or something. Mm. So that was a big plank of their arguments. I mean, the judge said people may choose to be vaccinated or undertake some other form of medical procedure in response to various forms of societal pressure, including a law or a rule, an employment condition to avoid familial or social resentment, even scorn. However, if they do so, that does not mean that their consent is vitiated or make the doctor who performed the vaccination liable for assault. So... People might be encouraged or influenced or even have this these pressures brought to bear upon them. But if they actually go into the vaccination clinic and say, I want to get a jab, then they're consenting to it. Gotcha, yeah. Yeah, yeah just because you might starve because you don't have a job mm. doesn't mean that you're not mm. consenting. It's quite a proposition. But going back to the last case that we just discussed, right, uh, you know, these retroactive, I'm just, as a question, a curious mind, I'm not, there's no agenda behind this. Is there some question around retroactively reworking someone's employment contract to say it's mandatory for you to have a jab if you're going to return back to work on Monday when you've, say, been a school teacher for 20 years? 
Well, this is a public health order, right? Yes. So this is a kind of, and this came up in the case as to whether it's like a legislative act or an administrative act. Right. But in any case, it's something that's got the force of state law. So I think that would kind of intervene in the contract, wouldn't it? I don't know. I'm just asking. I think it would, but I think it's coming up in many other professions or occupations where there is no public health order, but different organisations are requiring it. Mm. And I think it's being determined there on the basis of whether it's an essential requirement of the job. Like work health and safety? Yeah, or just because you're dealing with the public, it might be considered either to be an implied Mm -hmm. term or fall within an express term. Oh, that's interesting. That seems to be the way that, that I've heard it being dealt with. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's how you slip it in. So another argument that they ran was that there's a right to work that is part of these rights that are protected by the principle um, of legality and that not being expressly abrogated by the section that empowers the public health order, <clears throat> that it's invalid in that respect. Uh, Justice Beach Jones dealt with that by saying there is no right to work and the common law has long refused to recognise such a right. So if this had been litigated in the ACT... <clears throat> which has a Human Rights Act set that says everyone has the right to work, including the right to choose their occupational profession freely. It would have been quite different, I think. Yeah. Because as a matter of statutory construction, I think you'd be in a, on a much stronger ground to say, well, Section 7 does not expressly abrogate those rights, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Though, I mean, he also dealt with a number of grounds for example, arguments in relation to freedom of movement, where he said obviously certain of these provisions do infringe that, but he said the principle of legality is not engaged because that's the whole scheme of the Act. That's and the right. Act expressly the whole purpose sort of, of creates it. provisions for containment and so forth. Um, so another right they argued, and this is pretty interesting from a sort of criminal law point of view, so they argued that the privileged against self-incrimination not having been expressly referred to in the section or expressly ag- expressly abrogated is not able to be offended by a public health order and various provisions in the public health orders required people for example to produce evidence of their their identity their residence um, and their vaccination status the way that he dealt with that which to my mind seems a bit controversial is he said well The privilege against self-incrimination is a privilege against producing documents that might incriminate you. In circumstances where the scheme of the order is to require you to produce evidence of identity, your residence and your vaccination status. So as to exonerate yourself. In other words, exactly. Would actually exonerate you. Yeah. Lawfully be working as a teacher or on a construction site, etc. Yeah. But what I and then he did refer to this, but didn't sort of deal with it in to my mind in a kind of satisfactory way was the situation where in response to the demand you say, Well, I don't have those things because I'm not vaccinated, so I don't have a document of vaccination status. You're then admitting that you're in breach of the public health order by being in a particular area. Mm. And he just sort sort of dealt with that by saying, well, it still doesn't invoke or engage a privilege against self-incrimination because it's not the evidence required to be produced that's incriminated you, it's the absence of it. So that was the way that he dealt with that question of privilege against self-incrimination, which is probably the weak point in my view in the judgment because I don't know that a circumstance where you're forced to admit that you've breached the public health order 
isn't a situation that would be covered by some aspect of the bundle of rights that is referred to as the right to silence. That's right. Yeah, because the privilege against self-incrimination is only part of it, right? That's right, yeah. The yeah, self-incrimination is the part. companion principle mm. to the right against self-incrimination. Yeah. So Sorry, I, the... Yeah. Right to silence. Right to silence, yeah. yeah. So that to me seemed probably a weak point, but anyway. So another of these legal arguments that didn't turn so much on the expert evidence was the argument that it offended that this scheme in relation to vaccination um, affected, sorry, engaged the prohibition in the constitution on the civil conscription um, of medical doctors effectively. And this is pretty interesting, and I wasn't actually that familiar with all of this. It's sometimes raised when there's discussions about using the Medicare system to force doctors to work in the country. And the AMA has got this long-running argument that that would be civil conscription, which is pretty interesting. Just putting in here, the AMA that Stephen is referring to is the Australian Medical Association. Uh, but anyway, they made this argument that this particular, particular provision um, in Section 51 of the Constitution was offended by this requirement of mandatory vaccination. So the provision in the Constitution, Section 51, I think it's 23A, X11A. Sorry, everyone. Yes. Yeah, 11 I guess the headphones. So that's a, a power that uh, that is given to the federal parliament to oh. make laws with respect to the provision of maternity allowances, widows' pensions, child endowment, unemployment, pharmaceutical... Sickness and hospital benefits, medical and dental services, open bracket. What section? Not 51XX111A. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah, I could have told you six months ago. 5123A, (laughs) I'm calling it. So, before I was interrupted. Sorry. By James. Medical and dental services, open bracket, but not so as to authorise any form of civil conscription. So that provision and its history is talked about in the judgment from that's, paragraph two. That's interesting. That's yeah, the, it is. well well spotted. Mm. So that was G and M. G and M. G and M. Well spotted. G and M. G and B. lawyers. G and M. G and M. Why not? Um, edit, edit, edit. <laughs> so that protection in the constitution, such as it is, seems to have been introduced because of concerns around the time of the drafting arising from different countries. And I think the USA might have done it, uh, where the nationalisation of medical services had occurred um, and doctors and so forth had basically, in their view, been forced into the service of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was saying, that it's used by the AMA to argue against this idea of Medicare provider numbers being used to force doctors into the country. Uh, they say that that would, would offend this provision. Anyway, the argument in this case as to why this was said to be civil conscription was pretty elusive. Um, and Justice Beach-Jones basically found that to require an individual indirectly to get a vaccination is not to engage in a form of civil conscription sure. as is intended by the Constitution. Right. He's on a drew a distinction between the acquisition of medical services, effectively you're pressured into getting vaccinated, mm. yeah, and the conscription by way of delivery of those services. So you couldn't force the doctors to give it, uh, but you can, well, you're Bit really of a, forcing Another it. long bow. I thought the, I, I thought I, I'd heard about this argument being run beforehand I thought it was going to fail. Didn't seem like their best point. Didn't seem like their best point. 
But they ran a lot of points. In this Where's game. your A game? Bring your A game next time. There's 70,000 people watching. They don't want to watch B sports. <laughs> well, I mean. Run elusive points yeah. like that. What do you think, Emmanuel? You've been silent on this one. Give us it. Give us your best. He's been holding back, I reckon. I know he has. Look at him. One, I think. No, look. It's a week since, quote, unquote, Freedom Day. You know, since our freedoms were returned to us. Yes. But our freedoms weren't taken away when COVID-19 started. They were taken away when a minister of the state was given the power, as Justice Beach Jones has made clear, to force people to get vaccinated. All right. To force people to do all of these things. Now, I make no criticism of pressure being placed on people to get vaccinated. But... And in fact, I would have no problem with the Parliament of New South Wales passing a law that said you have to be vaccinated or you, or you can't work in certain industries, right? Unless you've got an exemption. I mean, a reasonable law in that regard. But the idea that a member of the executive government can, by fiat, do these things to us appalls me. And I have no doubt that Justice Beach Jones's judgment is, you know, I've read it, It's it's... He gets it right. I mean, his arguments are all cogent and reasonable, and we can pick in there are some things that one might disagree with. But if you go through one by one, Justice Beach Jones is right. We don't have any right to push back against this kind of thing. I think you have an interesting point, if I may add, because when you look at the, the beginning of the, you know, let's call it the health order regime, when it was government by health order, right? You've had almost close to two years where Parliament could have sat... Plenty of time. ...and deliberated how are we going to respond to these situations going forward because policy on the run... Sorry, legislation on the run isn't the best approach, probably. And yet it was never rectified. Mm. No. Is that what you're saying? That's what... And I'm saying, look, in the instant moment, in the first few months of a pandemic... Sure. Hell, give them the power because I don't want people to die. Got it. Right? Yes. But... Two years down the track, you should not be by fiat forcing vaccination. That's not to say that you shouldn't force vaccination. No. It may well be the smart move. But do it by prop. By pro- do it in Parliament. Gotcha. Don't lock Parliament down. Uh-huh. So when we talk about getting our freedoms back, the reality is nothing has changed because tomorrow they can be taken away in an instant. And we saw attempts for the upper house to sit that were quashed on some measly technical ground that may or may not work, doesn't, you know, this this rule that if the, if the executive government doesn't turn up, the upper house won't sit, which blows my mind away. Um, and here we are. And this is really, again, this, this, this is a symptom of the same thing I was talking about in, in the previous topic, which is you can look at the finickety little rights and the, the little legal decisions and, and say, well, this is all correct. But if you take a step back and look at the justice, the equity of the issue, is it right that a person should be forced to lose their job if they're not vaccinated because a minister says that? Mm, 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 mm. My answer to that is no. Is it right because we as a society have decided that it's necessary that that occur through our parliament? Mm. I would absolutely 100% endorse that. And that is a real problem. So one of the interesting procedural parts of this case was that 
in the preparation for the litigation, the plaintiffs issued a number of notices to the state parties seeking documents so that they could flesh out their arguments in relation to, you know, what things were taken into account by the minister in making these decisions, what documents did he have before him, um, did he take into account irrelevant things, did he miss out relevant things, um, those kinds of That's questions. And a number of the documents that were before the minister or um, information that could have been provided on that topic were kept out of the proceedings entirely on the basis that they the government had a privilege, public interest immunity privilege, that legitimately kept them out. And that was on the basis predominantly that many of the discussions and documents that formed part of the decision-making process for the the making of these public health orders occurred as part of the role and functions of this thing called the Crisis Policy Committee, which was a committee that was set up at the beginning, I think, of 2019 um, or maybe the following year in relation to the bushfires. Right, I think you can say that, yeah. And then morphed into um, a committee that then turned its attention to the pandemic Mm -hmm. when it arose in 2020. And so the argument by the government was that effectively the decisions of the Crisis Policy Committee are reported to the Cabinet and formed part of um, Cabinet Privilege, cab- privilege, privilege, yeah, cabinet essentially. processes. And so um, Brad Hazard didn't give evidence in the proceedings um, and <clears throat> documents that were formed part of um, the records of the crisis policy committee were kept out of the proceedings by way of this mm. privilege claim being successful. Mm. And I think it just really underscores, again, this point that when you govern in that way... Um, the courts can't look behind any of it and so you don't get any accountability brought to bear by something being litigated by people who are acknowledged to have standing by virtue of their special interest being affected, living in these areas of concern, not wanting to get vaccinated, etc. But you also don't have the transparency and accountability through parliament mm-hmm. because it's not sitting and it's not concerning itself with, the, concerning itself with these matters. Mm-hmm. So the system, and I think the timing is right as well, you know, like it's not just, I think we have kind of accepted or just become inured to this idea that every decision that concerns the pandemic is an urgent one and therefore kind of shrouded in this necessary secrecy and it just has to be rushed through and done behind closed doors quickly. Mm. Whereas... It's of such it's such grave import, impacts people so significantly that I just don't think that argument bears out, mm. particularly in circumstances where it's you know, dragged on for so long. Yeah. And, and, the, and there's to... opportunities for, for policy to be generated. Yeah. Mm. Well, and, and for people to ask questions that improves the management of the state. You know, I'm a firm believer that if you question ministers and advisors and, you know, the health officers again and again, If they just once a week, let's have a couple of hours where you explain to us why you're doing what you do. Once every couple of weeks, you're going to find something that improves as a result. And it's lost. Mm. And it's... And when it's happening in committees in terms of estimates, like that's all well and good, 
But I don't think that's the same thing as parliamentarians having the opportunity to move amendments nah, to an act yeah. that would govern the way that these rights are engaged. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not the same thing. Absolutely. You know? And what happens in estimates it sort of gets a bit of media coverage and then it kind of floats off into nothingness. Mm-hmm. I think. So what I would like to see is an amendment to the Public Health Act that limits the exercise of these powers to some time period. Sure. Well, that's well, it does. Right? They expanded it from 28 days to 90 days. No, but... It, Reducing sorry. it, but now, but now they can be extended. Uh, yeah, so I want a limitation on the extensions. Mm. without. So you have to have recourse to Parliament or something. You, totally. You, you have to figure out, you can figure out the language, Yeah. but that should happen. And yeah. I, I hope it does. I suspect it won't. I, I doubt it will because the amendment to expand it from 28 days to 90 days is not that long ago. Yeah. Well, I'm saying that. So, you know, yeah, yeah, It should yeah. happen. It's not yeah. likely to be unpicked. But, yeah, I mean, this the realities of this pandemic, I think, have exposed the vulnerabilities of our system in that regard. Yeah. So I might just go back to a couple more. I won't go through them all, but a couple more of the grounds that sort of turned on legal issues rather than on the evidence issues. Another one was they argued that the public health orders had been made in breach of procedural fairness and were therefore invalid. And that got dealt with basically by the judge applying a series of cases that say that when a decision applies to a class of person, then procedural fairness protection does not apply. And so in this case, these orders apply to millions of people. How could you give everyone a hearing on them? Mm. Which, I don't know, I mean, I suppose you probably could. You could publish drafts or something like that. Yeah, you could have parliament. Or you could have parliament. (laughs) Yeah, that's the answer, I think. People could lobby their members of parliament. Yeah, it's like there's a system for this. Hey, do you reckon parliament, oh, this question for all of you, doesn't sit enough? Yeah, I don't think it sits enough. I don't it's think a it does. joke how yeah. little it sits. In New sits. South Wales, it doesn't sit enough. Why is it? Why, like, even, even you look at a sitting week, Tuesday to Thursday. I don't mind that, but do that every week. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you reckon? Yeah. Anyway. So, so the last of the kind of legal grounds, if I can put them that way, that I was going to talk about was the Kassam uh, plaintiff's argument that Section 109 of the Constitution invalidated particular parts of the public health order because it was inconsistent with the Australian Immunisation Register Act of 2015. (laughs) That's basically an act that um, provides for um, a register of immunisations and casts different obligations on people who administer different vaccines to report them to the register puts restrictions on the transmission of information um, in relation uh, to to immunisations. And their arguments seem to be, there's obviously this whole complicated area about Section 109, which says that inconsistent state and federal laws, uh, the federal law prevails. But there's sort of two aspects to that. One is like a direct inconsistency where the state law alters, impairs or detracts from the Commonwealth law. Then there's another kind of field of inconsistency, which is where the Commonwealth law is intended to cover the field. So there might not be a direct inconsistency, but the overall intention of the Federal Act is to be the only law, only law on that topic. Their arguments seem to fall into the latter category. Uh, they said that it covered the field and the judge said, look, it doesn't. Uh, the subject matter is quite different. It's trying, to, it's trying to achieve different things. There's no inconsistency. So that's a few of the kind of legal arguments. Turning then to the evidence questions, the big one that's kind of interesting was the argument that they ran that the minister in issuing the public health orders had not taken into account a range of relevant considerations 
that they said uh, the minister was obliged to take into account. There's heaps of them, A to U. Um, so I'll just read out some of them because it sort of gives a flavour of what they were arguing. So they were saying that the minister was obliged to take into account but failed to, to take into account A, the lack of scientific certainty surrounding the efficacy and safety of COVID-19 vaccinations in relation to all variants of the virus, the lack of scientific certainty surrounding the efficacy and safety of COVID-19 vaccinations in relation to the Delta variant, other health measures, alternatives to vaccinations as a means by which to address the risk to public health, the common law right to bodily integrity, and then they list a whole lot of other rights under common law that they say the minister didn't take into account in issuing the orders. Um, then a whole range of things like uh, protections against discrimination on the grounds of disability, because they were sort of arguing that not being vaccinated would be recognised as a disability. Um, the obligations of healthcare professionals to do no harm, rights to anonymity and privacy under various different acts, right to the presumption of innocence, right to remain silent, privilege against self-incrimination, and then a whole range of international instruments. What the judge basically said was, you have to determine what is a mandatory relevant consideration by looking to either the express terms of the statute or looking to a category of considerations that uh, by reference to the subject matter and purpose of the act should be considered as mandatory mm. and basically said all of those things that you've listed are too specific they're too specific to be mandatory and they're not expressly required to be considered therefore they're not mandatory relevant considerations so all those arguments pretty much failed um, on that basis so on that disability point there's an interesting case that's going to go ahead brought by i think morris blackburn teenager up in Queensland who is vaccinated, works at a pizza shop and lost her job because of being vaccinated and she's taking her boss to the Human Rights Commission on the basis that, at least in part, she's going to be arguing, I think, discrimination based on disability. Hmm. Just sort of interesting, this vaccination status question and whether that falls into the prism of disability. Mm, interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty interesting discussion uh, on that point. You know, that list that you just read out of, diff of, of things that they thought that the minister hadn't taken into mm. account, all of those things sound like really reasonable questions to say, have these things been thought about? Some of them have imputations that one might disagree with, mm -hmm. but all of those things are things that you would expect to have been asked and considered before you mandated the battery of a person through vaccination. Yeah. And again, there's just no exegesis from the government mm. about how this happened. Yeah. How do you balance the risks? How do you balance the yeah. the risks that the interventions that you implement, which are to try to keep people safe from a population health level, don't cause other harms. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting how Justice Beach Jones said, well, when you when it comes down to it, it's really about just a restriction on movement that is engaged. And because of the way that the rules operated at that time in areas of concern, 
the end result was that persons who lived in the areas of concern who were authorised workers and who had not fulfilled the vaccination requirements were in no different position to people who lived in the areas of concern and who were not authorised workers. And so you've got a category of people who Mm. might all be vaccinated, double vaccinated, they're not authorised workers and they can't go to work. They're staying at home. Mm. And so all the... You know, there's a lot of different people who are being affected very gravely by these measures designed to keep people away from each other. And I don't know whether we've really had sufficient public discussion about the, you know, the risks, the risks that interventions cause other harms. You know, mask wearing, I think, is another good example to consider how much that really benefits versus the harms that comes with mandates and things Mm. like that. Being beaten up by police for not wearing a mask. Right. It's all an advertisement for parliamentary debate, right? All this stuff. It is. I mean, mean, it's just, it shouldn't be done through administrative orders. And the media hasn't been a sufficient um, Accountability mechanism. Well, they've largely been you know? a cheer squad totally. for you for... know the uh, for particular public health objectives, and that might be quite right in a kind of merit sense, but it doesn't provide any sort of scrutiny in that sense. But also quite facile competitions between New South Wales and Victoria. Yeah, yeah. That that's how we should measure these these really important policy measures. So there was also an argument run basically that the orders were unreasonable, that you couldn't, that no reasonable decision maker could have weighed all the considerations and on, you know, the basis of the evidentiary sort of picture made the orders. And there was kind of various aspects to that. So I won't go through it all, but probably at 240s, a pretty good summary of how the judge approached it in one respect. He said, in the end result, the evidence concerning the effectiveness of the vaccines mean that the Henry plaintiffs did not establish that the differential treatment of unvaccinated people in the impugned orders was an approach that no minister acting reasonably could have considered to be necessary to deal with the identified risk to public health and its possible consequences. So, you know, you could sort of say that these people lost in one sense on the merits as well. I mean, through the prism of determination of an unreasonableness ground, but... Yeah, the judge accepted various expert evidence that went against a lot of the factual thrust, I think, of these cases. Just quickly, a couple of other grounds. They ran a ground, the Kassam plaintiffs, that the minister didn't engage in the necessary intellectual engagement that was required by the section in terms of issuing the public health orders. And this kind of touches on what you were talking about before, Flick, about unavailable evidence because a lot of the things before the minister and aspects of evidence that would have illuminated his sort of intellectual engagement weren't available because of the way that notices uh, to produce were dealt with and so forth. And the judge said at 243, these submissions confuse an absence of evidence with evidence of absence. Um, The evidence concerning the making of the orders, various orders is described above. As noted, the notice to produce issued by the Kassam plaintiffs was only responded to by reference to the documents immediately before the minister. And material was placed before the minister in a cabinet subcommittee, which was the subject of public interest immunity. The contention of the Kassam plaintiffs that the minister did not engage in a process of consideration was not demonstrated as a matter of fact. So what that's basically saying is you didn't get your documents, therefore you couldn't meet your burden Mm. in terms of proving this 
type of constructive failure to exercise jurisdiction in terms of a lack of intellectual engagement, therefore you lose. The onus was on the plaintiffs. Yeah. You couldn't gather the evidence. Exactly. The government could legitimately shield the evidence from you. Yeah. So you and they tried to run a Jones and Dunkel argument that you would sort of assume the worst against the minister, but the judge just didn't think it was that sort of case. But also... the I, evidence was explained. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Like, if you've got a legitimate privilege to com- claim, then yeah. I don't think you can say against that party, oh, a- an adverse inference should be drawn. Not in the circumstance of a public interest immunity claim, I don't think, because there's no basis to assume that it was negative because there's some other thing that they're seeking to protect, right? Mm. Some uh, other yeah. public interest. Uh, again, these rules all presume a functioning democracy, yeah. and that, that's why they're there, because you don't need to do that, because if there is something, it'll be fixed. Mm. Yeah. So this judgment is worth a read, I reckon, particularly by students. Like, it's really complicated, but it's a bit of a journey through admin law in the sense mm. that they ran so many grounds. Oh, good tip, because that's my next that's subject. That's your next subject. You should read it, mate, because they ran so many grounds that it kind of takes you through most of the common grounds of judicial review and some of the uncommon ones. Thank you. That was very enlightening. Felicity Graham. How about Felicity Kingsbury Graham? Kingsbury. That's Please me. Please take That's us me. away for our final topic of the night. All right. Final topic. A case of the New South Wales Court of Appeal, Lacey, which is a pseudonym, and the Attorney General for New South Wales. So this topic concerns the principles of equality before the law and access to justice for all, which are fundamental aspects of the rule of law. Okay. And the case exposes potential threats to equality and barriers to full participation by individuals with certain characteristics in participation in court proceedings. And in this case concerns um, a young female Aboriginal person and characteristics that arose by virtue um, of that being the accused in criminal proceedings. And when I looked into this topic, I came across a number of pieces of legislation of the Australian colonies which excluded Aboriginal people from participating in litigation, specifically an effective prohibition on Aboriginal people testifying in court. And that arose because under the law at that time, Aboriginal people could not be administered a Christian oath, which is a precondition to the giving of evidence by a witness. And so under British law at that time, which applied in the colonies, no facility um, existed for the making of a non-religious promise to tell the truth as a witness. So that's the common affirmation that exists in court today. Mm. Um, And nor was there any facility or procedure for a witness to give unsworn evidence, which is also um, a feature of our system in some circumstances now. Mm. So turning to the decision earlier this year of the New South Wales Court of Appeal of Lacey, the court grappled with a scenario of, I guess, indirect exclusion from participation in proceedings by the application of some sort of rigid rules or ideas around um, how court proceedings are to occur. And it concerned this 15-year-old Aboriginal girl who had been arrested by police. She'd been charged with a bunch of offences 
damaged property, taking a car without the consent of the owner, and also some offences that concerned um, her interactions with police upon arrest, including assaulting police. The prosecution case included footage of Lacey being strip-searched back at the police station following her arrest. Mm. Lacey foreshadowed that she wished to rely on the same footage to establish a defence arising from what she asserted to be the unlawful nature of the strip search. Mm -hmm. And the footage contained images of her bare buttocks and her bare chest during the search. So she made an application in the children's court to have the proceedings conducted by a female prosecutor and before a female magistrate um, and, if necessary, with a change of venue... And she sought also an order preventing any male person viewing the video footage of the strip search. She was represented by a female solicitor at the Aboriginal Legal Service and those orders were sought based on some evidence that was adduced in the children's court from an Aboriginal field officer who was working at the Aboriginal Legal Service and effectively gave evidence that First of all, allowing male persons to view the video would be humiliating, distressing um, to Lacey. Mm -hmm. Secondly, that allowing male persons to view the video would breach cultural norms in that showing um, of a woman's sensitive parts is women's business Mm -hmm. and that must only be conducted in the presence of women. And if women's business is conducted in the presence Mm. of men, then the likely result is cultural shame, which would be extremely distressing and would stay with the young woman for a long time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting how there's an argument that that's a cultural norm in the Aboriginal community in circumstances where it's in all, it's in lepra, right? Like it's a cultural norm in the broader community too. Sure Sure. Like not necessarily in those same particular ways, but... It's pretty much a general recognised norm in kind of broader culture, but then recognised in in the act in the sense that strip searches can only occur, like a strip search of of a juvenile male or female can only occur in front of someone of the same gender, right? Usually. Yeah. Mm. Like that's in Lepra, right? It's mm. in the regs or whatever. Yeah. 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 So look, I think when we get to discussion of what the court, how the court dealt with it, it wouldn't necessarily... You know, the the principles that were dealt with in this case and the way that they analysed the issues... Wouldn't be Aboriginal-specific? I don't think so. I mean, it's definitely going to be fact-specific to the individual circumstances of um, an accused or litigant and how that might kind of bear upon who would Mm. be appropriate to hear a case, but I don't think it hangs on that necessarily. Mm. Yeah, so the evidence also, and I think this was really important, extended to Lacey saying that if her charges were not heard by a female magistrate, she would just plead guilty and not defend the matter because she did not want um, male persons seeing that video footage of her, um, her naked body. So the magistrate at first instance refused the application and that was done on the basis that... And was that a man or a woman? A man. Mm. Um, An order prohibiting men from viewing the contents of the video, if made, would inappropriately constrain the ability of the prosecution properly to present its case. So who was the poor magistrate who had the the fortune to be the subject of this application? (laughs) Can you just imagine a magistrate getting this application from the ALS? 
and thinking, I am totally being set up for an appeal here. <laughs> Isn't that the sort of thing you used to? <laughs> the magistrate, at first instance, refused the application. That was on the basis that an order prohibiting men from viewing the contents of the video, if made, would inappropriately constrain the ability of the prosecution to put its case forward because it would prevent male officers from commenting on the footage of the strip search during their evidence. Mm, Having reached that conclusion, his honour concluded that it would be illogical to make the other orders sought by Lacey in relation to who could or should should hear the case by way of a judicial officer and prosecutor and so on. So then in the first rung of appellate litigation, which was up to the Supreme Court seeking leave under Section 53, 3B of the Crimes Appeal and Review Act, the... Case was basically dealt with on the issue of power. So although the magistrate did not determine the application on the basis that he lacked the power to make the orders sought, the Attorney General's response to the summons in the Supreme Court raised the question of power as a reason that the primary judge would not remit the matter to the Children's Court even if error were established. So a sort of notice of contention type Mm. scenario. And so the appeal before Justice Wilson in the Supreme Court proceeded on that basis, that it was a question of power and that that was the central issue. Justice Wilson determined the the case against Lacey and held variously that the decision of the magistrate was either not amenable to appeal because it was not an interlocutory order or that the magistrate had no power to make an order that the matter be heard before a female magistrate and that the magistrate had no power to make an order that no men be present for the playing of the videotape and that it was not to be disclosed to any men. So she lost um, at first instance, lost on the first rung of appeal and then took it up to the Court of Appeal. The... Appeal in front of the Court of Appeal was actually dismissed for some technical reasons, which we don't don't need to go into, but it was really a win in substance for Lacey because the court not only preserved her position to make a further application in the Children's Court to protect her interest to be able to fully participate in the proceedings, but also made a number of comments that suggested that if such an application were to be made again, it would be successful. Mm. So Justices Baston, Leeming and McCallum sat. Justice Baston couched the the issues in terms of whether the fair and proper administration of justice will be fatally compromised by conducting a hearing before a male magistrate and confirmed that the Children's Court has power in a proper case to make an order that charges be heard by a female or indeed male magistrate as the circumstances of the case may warrant. And then Justices Leeming and McCallum also acknowledged the power of the local court and so the children's court to order that a prosecution be stayed conditionally, Mm. including with conditions to the effect that the proceedings only be heard by a female magistrate and in respect of certain evidence to the exclusion of men. But that's a bit funny, isn't it, in the sense that normally a stay, conditional stay, is contingent upon a party doing a particular thing. Whereas only the court can provide uh, the judicial officer, right? That's true. And so it may require other arrangements to be made. For example, we need to move this case from Dubbo to mm. Sydney. But it's but funny who's the we? court to the stay court. until yeah. the court does something. Yeah, so that it seems funny to me. Yeah, it's odd. Um, yeah, that's 
true. I suppose it might be, well, I'm adjourning this case mm. to be heard. Um, but that was the way that they framed it. And that in an exceptional case provide that such a condition was necessary for the effective exercise of the court's statutory yeah. powers, essentially. A couple of other provisions that were referred to specific to cases against kids, which in relation to criminal proceedings is caught by the Children Criminal Proceedings Act in New South Wales. So the court also referred to Section 10, which provides that criminal proceedings against a child are to be conducted in the absence of the public. And so the court said, well, that is conferring a power to exclude any male during the hearing, including any male police officer other than during his evidence. And Justice McCallum also referred to Section 12 of the Act, which is one that I have always thought is a very important one and one that I think, for example, also engages an argument, which is to say that children shouldn't be caught by the procedure where you can be found guilty Mm. or convicted in your absence, which is section 196 of the Criminal Procedure Act in connection with 199. But section 12 says that um, it requires a court to give the child the fullest opportunity practicable to be heard and to participate in the proceedings. And I think it's quite an important feature of the Children's Court which acknowledges the power imbalance between everyone else who's participating in the courtroom, the judicial officer, the prosecutor, even the the child's own lawyer and the child themselves. And Her Honour, Justice McCallum, said that for the effective exercise of the function of giving the applicant the fullest opportunity practicable to be heard and to participate, the matter should be heard by a female magistrate. So can, can I just note that the beginning of that paragraph you just read out, which is 109 in the judgment is the evidence in the present case was to the effect that if the proceedings could not be heard by a female magistrate, the applicant did not wish to defend the matter. If that evidence is accepted, it establishes for the effective exercise of that function, it should be heard by a female magistrate. Yeah, sure. So I think that was a really important factual matter. It's a fascinating, to my mind, it's like, well, if a child says, I'm not going to participate, participate in this unless you do what I want, mm. leaving aside the merits of what they want. Let's just let's just take it at that callous level for a moment. It's a difficult thing to imagine a court mm. countenancing that as a general proposition, mm. which it seems perhaps inadvertently, Justice McCallum, well, that's perhaps one inadvertent implication of what Her Honour's saying there. Yeah, but only, I guess, if it's not based on some very strong basis that compels them to sort of make that demand. Like the demand would have to be legitimate, right? Yeah, and well, kind of acceding to it based on Not an abusive process, for, for example, like just whatever. some callous, as you say, mm. demand. But it is an interesting tension, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's a party asking the court to do something. It's not a threat in terms of pleading guilty, <coughs> but... Yeah, but I mean, I, I think this is a strong decision. I mean, to my mind, it's, see, it seems very analogous, for example, to bias. Like the court will, you know, provide a new judicial officer if the old one is biased or there's an apprehension of bias. 
um, and that's necessary to maintain a fair hearing, to maintain public confidence, etc. So it doesn't seem to me to be that conceptually different to say, well, this party actually can't, on legitimate grounds, participate in the proceedings fully if I continue to sit on it, um, and therefore I'm not going to sit on it. And it also seems kind of conceptually similar to all of the kind of measures that courts used to take to modify their procedures um, in sexual assault matters, for example, prior to all the legislative stuff. Like courts used to authorise anonymity and authorise screens and do all sorts of things to sort of accommodate those interests of that person who's not a party, but they're sort of akin to a party, a complainant or whatever. So all this seems pretty consonant with all of that to me. Mm, it's interesting. Carly Warner, who mm. was the CEO of the ALS at the time, um, said this has effectively changed the law about gender and cultural evidence in New South Wales courts, making the legal system that little bit safer for women at a time when women's access to justice is rightly under the microscope. So I think it is consistent, as you say, Stevie, with measures that are broadly designed to achieve a better level of access to justice for people according to their specific needs and better achieve that equality before the law that we have Mm. as a principle. And also I think the preservation of human dignity, Mm. which is really central to effective rule of law. I mean, I think the... A 15-year-old girl being videotaped being strip-searched, I mean, that is a pretty invasive set of circumstances. So let's imagine that you had a 15-year-old man of Anglo-Saxon, boy of Anglo-Saxon descent charged with the type of sexual assault that's prosecuted in the children's court in which there was evidence that required the magistrate to consider his genitalia. Hmm. Or a video, a video, a video, a video of his genitalia. Would he be entitled under this rationale to say, "I only want a male magistrate"? And seems the answer to that is yes. He could make the application. He could make the, and, yeah. and 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 principally, we would support him having that if we were applying the same principles as we're applying here. I think we'd like to make the application, yes. But yeah. I think the basis for it would need to be a significant cultural norm or something that... But as you pointed out earlier, Stephen, it's a significant cultural norm in almost every culture. Yeah, it is. Right? Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's almost self-evident. Mm. The second question is this. Leaving aside the particular provisions of the children's court, let's assume that this was an adult and everything else applied. Would we be comfortable saying that adult should have an all-male jury because of the same reasons. Mm, and I think that, in terms of access to justice for women victims, is a concern. Mm, that's interesting. Right? I and suspect it wouldn't play out in that, sort of to that extreme, but it could. Well, I'm, I'm worried about the principle being mm. introduced into the law that starts to lead to those sorts of applications being made. Um, because, I, I mean, I, this seems self-evident to me. I mean, why wouldn't you have a woman magistrate doing this why wouldn't you exclude the menace possible self-evident but we've got to be very careful about how we go about this because i don't want female complainants in sexual assault matters being faced with applications of this kind and going well why why is everyone in this room a man mm-hmm. it's just frightening can i ask what happened when it went back to the children's court mm, yeah the so dropped, I think. 
Yep. So mm. the police withdrew all of the charges that related to the strip search. They withdrew another separate charge of assaulting a police officer, which was an allegation of spitting. Um, and then the other kind of minor matters that originally. So her they to were. Attention. They looked at the merits of her applications, presumably, and went, okay, let's, let's go a different tact. Well, I think. They probably would have looked at the merits of her underlying defence, which was to say that the strip search was unlawful and that was borne out by the video footage. Yeah. Um, But bearing in mind she'd been bail refused for five months um, pending determination of the matters. She ultimately got, I think, a short community-based order for the the other minor offending that brought her to the attention of police in the first place. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, I think there are... It's also important for us to acknowledge there was a big team of lawyers that worked on this case. Um, at the Aboriginal Legal Service, Jeremy Stiles, Bronte Wynn, um, other lawyers, and then a big team of pro bono counsel, Rose Kalazide, Talia Epstein, Chris Ronald, SC. They all worked on the case kind of through the, the different rungs of the litigation. Hats off to you lot. Yeah. Just going back to Manny's question before, do you think there's a cultural norm in our society of women not seeing like a naked picture of a man or do you think it only goes the other way because i personally wouldn't care myself but i think a lot of women would care about a man seeing it gee is that right do you think no i look i think it's probably right in some sense that is to say there is a gender imbalance there Mm. but i think there are many men who would feel shame at a bunch of women having viewing their genitalia Mm. Right? Yeah, that's probably right. Um, I feel that about anyone doing it. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, in fact, you, you, can, you can remove gender from that equation in, in a sense, but I think that they would feel less comfortable mm. with having women view their genitalia than they would men, which is why it's interesting. Do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think some men would some. not want the eyes of other men. Well, I think, mm. I think that's... But that's true in every... I'm talking generally. I think as... And I don't know. I mean, again, I don't know what the cultural norms are, but it's easy to imagine somebody who's in a particular religious sect, Mm. um, a particular religious background, or even just comes from a particular type of cultural background. Yeah, you could imagine very strong arguments, for example, by um, a Muslim woman for asking for a jury that's all, uh, all female. Yeah. <clears throat> if there's like nudity, like you can imagine cultural mores stronger than the one that the plaintiff or appellant in this case presented, I suspect much stronger cultural mores. So it sort of does open the door for this, like court procedures being changed or molded to sort of adopt culturally relative norms. Yeah. In a way that we haven't hitherto done. It's a huge step and it may be a good step. But it's not one that we ought to embark on lightly without sort of, you know, thinking through the potential consequences. I mean, I think when you're talking about the tribunal of fact being a magistrate, that's quite a different scenario to a jury which is meant to come with these notions of representing a broad spectrum of the community with all their various different life experiences and bringing their collective wisdom to bear on a question when it's a single judicial officer that is going to be hearing the case and gender, for example, as as the particular issue, can easily be accommodated because 
at least in New South Wales, you know, we broadly, I think, have 50-50% in the magistracy now. But there's more offence caused in a jury context because there's many more people. And they're, unpro- they're not professional. And they're not professional, yeah. you know. Mm. Though I suppose in the if you think about it through the prism of like apprehension of bias, uh, the necessity principle will kind of relieve that obligation to disqualify yourself. So maybe in a jury context you could say, well, look, it's necessitous to allow the jury to proceed because our jury system sort of doesn't allow for gender selection. Because the Jury Act's quite prescriptive, isn't it? No, but you... It's random and all that. It's random, but you have your jury panel and the judge says... Challenge for cause. Challenge for cause. You could make. But there's limited challenges with cause. No, No, no unlimited challenge for cause. No limitation. Yeah, that's interesting. So maybe it could be considered cause. Yeah. Yeah, Mm. Is cause defined in the jury? No. I've never looked at that. No. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, well, let's assume that's not right. Then... There'd be no other way to do it, probably under the Jury Act, would there? No, but you could do it that way. I mean, I'm not saying mm. it would get up, but you you could run an argument like that. It is a Pandora's box, isn't it? Yeah. Smart lawyering by the ALS. Welcome back to The Wigs. I am James Philip Cranny Mins coming at you. That's my full name. How do we spell Cranny? C-R-A-N-N-E-Y. Oh, E-Y. Paul Cranny. Yeah, it's not, it's, not, it's not on my birth certificate. It's but Paul Cranny's first cousin. It's my mother's maiden name. Yes. What? And uh, that was my name at birth. And that was raised in our Wigs WhatsApp chat um, and dissected and threatened uh, that it would be brought up on the show, so I'm getting ahead of the curve. Oh, maybe I'm not, because Mr. Well, Emmanuel. Throw in? This, is, this is my fun thing. So fun thing. Here we go, Emmanuel. I, I had the absolute pleasure of corresponding with James's <laughs> mother recently. Um, we were in an article in in a public in the Bar News, and I. Um, I've somehow got a mention, and yeah. my mum was quite chuffed. Yes, yeah, so I sent a little note with the copy of the Bar News. Okay, yeah, yeah. let's re- let's rewind. Okay. Sorry. Okay. My mum has a friend who works for some barristers right. who tipped her off that James was in a copy of the latest edition of Bar News. Yes. And my mum was quite overwhelmed with that uh, news and asked me for a copy to which I threw it to you three. Can someone send my mum a copy of Bar News? To which you then proceeded with the following. Yeah, I wrote a little note sort of <laughs> praising James uh, and praising her for raising such a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> and She's sent, already sent framed. Through. And um, I got this lovely email back, but it was something like, you know, I taught James everything I know. There you and go. So and she spilled everything the, he knows. Everything he knows. That's yes, right, everything yeah. he knows, indeed. And 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 spilt the beans on the only human on earth who calls me James <laughs> yes. in the belly of that email, to which you have hijacked and brought into this. Well, in uh, deference to your mother, sorry. James. I know. Look, the gym thing, you know, either Jameses who are listening will get it, you know? It just, people hijack your name and yeah, then you... don't like Jim. She doesn't. She, uh, mm. Chris, my brother, who some of you may know, 
uh, was interviewed in the newspaper, asked, oh, yeah, you got any brothers and sisters? Yes, I have a sister, Sarah, and a brother, Jimmy, to which my mum was Ooh. not happy. Jimmy? Jimmy said, yeah, I got a brother, wow. Jimmy. And my mum was like, no, you don't. Is, it, is, it, is, <laughs> he, is he a <laughs> Christopher? Uh, I think it... legally he is, Christopher. Right. Yeah, so exactly, same thing. Chrissy? You know? I don't know, Manny? Yeah. Mate, what do you reckon? You like that one? James, is that... What's that? Jim is not a contraction of James. It is, well, it is. Well, I, I, I was raised as every <laughs> f***ing person under the... Sorry, Auntie Mish. Every f***ing person <laughs> under the sun has got... Oh, yeah, Jim. Jim. I'm like, well, okay. That's my mum's called James, and my mum hates him being called Jim. There you well, go. she used to. I think she's got used to it now. But. Well, same with mine. It's the exact same boat as your brother, because uh, everyone... My father, everyone. I can't... There's no James. Maybe my wife and my in-laws. But that's about it. Felicity Kingsbury. Yes, it's about the names. Felicity Kingsbury <laughs> Graham the First of her house. Please. We're not sure if it's the first, by the way. You're Are you the? Yeah, I'm just assuming. The first Felicity Kingsbury. As far as I know, Kingsbury has been handed down through some women in my family. It was originally a maiden name, and then it was given to my grandmother and her sister as a middle name. Yes. And then it was given to me as a middle name, and Lovely. it's also been given to my little niece, Aurelia, as oh, a middle name. Oh, sweet. I love that name. Kingsbury, please fill us in with your fun thing. My fun thing is I have been looking into merch options for the wig. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> what are they? What are we doing? I don't well, even know. I'm not going to reveal. Oh, okay. Sick. Yet, oh, I like but that. I like that. They could be some good Christmas Christmas present yeah. options mm. or kind of end of year options for gifts for colleagues. Are or you friends. listening? Hey, listeners, we've got what you want. I think we should have cosplay judges' robes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. What's cosplay? You know, where you dress up as a character. Oh, okay. Yeah. With oh. wigs branded. No, too much? I don't know. That seems quite difficult. Who's got the market on horsehair wigs for barristers? Can we hijack that market? A few companies, I think. Isn't yeah. It? Mm. Let's get in on it. In England, that, that I think does a lot of them. Yeah, it's but one like, that lets you choose the horse. Mm, my wig's about a no, hundred no. years old. <laughs> I was going to say. What'd you say? My wig's about a hundred years old. Fair income. Yeah, because I. <clears throat> Got it from my old boss who was a judge. Wow. And he would have worn it probably for so you didn't have close to, buy to 50 one. years. And then he got it secondhand in London from someone who probably would have wow. worn it for, I don't know, a good number That's of decades. Huge. we got to get in on that. That's the rig, I reckon. Because if you're a barrister coming up and you're listening to this show, you want a freaking wigs podcast wig. Part of the crew. Well, you, we, we, we'll sign your wig for you. Yeah, That's outrageous. we'll sign every wig that we sell. <laughs> Stephen Bradbury, Gingel. Lawrence, Gingel. <laughs> Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Stephen Bradbury. My no, 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 Bradbury is Ste- not. No, part Stephen. Of it. Stephen <laughs> Bradbury. He's the guy who leapfrogged at the Winter Olympics <laughs> oh, to the yes. front. Sorry, no. sorry, Mr. Stephen Bradbury. <laughs> apologise to you, Mr. Stephen Gingel. I thought that might have been a slight on the legitimacy of my merity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's good. You and a few other people in Dubbo, eh? Well, I mean, that was by accident, but, you know, yeah. fortuitous accident. Please, what's your fun thing? The way that I normally work out my fun thing is I go through my diary. <laughs> okay, um, stand by, viewers. <laughs> this is what happiness looks like. Funeral folks. yesterday. Oh, lovely. Ooh, no. Great. 
uh, dinner with the ADF um, on Wednesday night in Dubbo. The whole ADF? Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> quite fun. Uh, what, no, it was in with, Afghanistan? With the main leaders of uh, the vaccination, sort of ADF vaccination thing in Western New South Wales, including a Brigadier General who was I sort of visiting. I saw your post, yes. I didn't post about it, mate. You did. You said, well done, ADF. Yeah, but I didn't post about the dinner. No, I am. Were you? Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, yes. <laughs> that was fun. Um, okay. Uh, what else? No, that'll do. Uh, Tony Stewart in Dubbo. <laughs> yeah, the, I think he's the CEO of Kids Off the Street, Father Chris Riley. He was in Dubbo. That was good. Had a meeting with him. Nice one. Um, is that interesting, my diary? No, this is the most either. riveting series. That's, yeah. That's really good. Mate, tell, up, yeah, tell us about bike rides with Damien. Yeah, I've been going for bike rides. With bike rides. I've been getting fit. I've got a personal trainer, Rod Fidel. Shout out and to it him. shows because you are... Like it's like the two and a half, two, two, two like there's you're yeah, half the men used to be. Yeah, lost eleven kilos. It's great. Yeah. Oh, I know that went nowhere. So um, have I said enough to sort of justify? You've definitely you said, said enough. Said that's for sure. Um, I'm going out for dinner tonight. This is my well, first trip good. to Sydney since okay. June. Okay. Now, it's as look, we're all excited. Lockdown's over. You are getting regular wigs in the studios from now okay. on. Okay. Thank Sorry, you for I'm making. Finished. Yeah, only Mish, we apologise. Thanks for making the trip, Felicity Graham. Pleasure. Because you live up north now. I live up north now. So thank you for making the trip. Thank you for making the trip as always. Thanks thank you, Mr. Kirkusharian, for making the trip. Thank you, Jim. And you're very welcome. <laughs> and this is James Min signing off. What about your fun things, Jim? Yeah, oh, James. far out. <laughs> oh, I thought I gave it already. You haven't given us nothing. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, I passed my exams. You remember that yeah. episode? Remember that episode how I said I failed that assignment? I was really... And I yeah, passed. You so, no. Yeah, was that commercial? Or it no? was, yeah. I passed. So it was oh, all thanks to that episode. Good one. So can we have more detail, mate? Marks? Great. I got 52 just passed. Well done, mate. Yeah. I got 51 in corporate law. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Nightmare. 50 in property. Nightmare mate, topic. passing is all that matters. P- P's make degrees. There it is. Yeah. There it is. P's make degrees. Oh, yeah. passes. Yeah, That's yeah, correct. That's yes. Ladies and gentlemen, you have your ears have been so attractive. It's been fantastic to be in them. We'll be in them again in a month. <laughs> Adios, amigos. Slightly creepy. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.